It's funny, last time we were here, you might recall uh, back in May, uh, I struggled about whether or not to preach from here or the floor. And about five minutes ago, as we were reading 1 Timothy, I was like, I'm going to preach from the floor. And then during the gospel, I was like, no, I'm going to preach from the pulpit. And I'm actually, now that David, you're gone, I'm going to take your music stand and I'm going to preach from here. I, I love the, um, the symbol of, of preaching from a pulpit, but I also really love being close to, to all of you. <laughs> and that's one of the things I love about being in that gymnasium is I'm able to preach so close to all of you. So Molly and I, uh, my wife and I, we used to live in San Francisco. We were missionaries there. We served with this organization called Interchange. Uh, Many of you know who Interchange is. And we loved our season of living in San Francisco. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. We lived in one of those uh, typical San Francisco tall homes that are extremely narrow. And we had that, the bottom flat there. It was actually a converted garage. How lovely is that? Every time it rained, it would flood. Uh, Wonderful things like this. And this is where we had our firstborn child. Uh, So little Marin, uh, she was born in San Francisco. And it was so nice being in that bottom level flat because uh, we were very, very strict when it came to, I didn't mean to like look at mothers when I said that, (laughs) we were very strict when it came to sleep schedules, as most first-time parents are, you know, trying to make sure that we're going to raise the child who sleeps absolutely perfectly. And it was wonderful. Yeah, the parents are laughing. And it was great being on that ground level because we could lay our daughter into that little um, carriage thing and we could just wheel her out and walk around town and wheel her back in so we could still have our social lives while adhering to this sleeping schedule. She wouldn't be disturbed. Um, But getting her to sleep wasn't always that easy. So in this home, we had some wonderful neighbors who lived above us. It was uh, uh, in the flat above us lived a bunch of uh, Latino women. And these women, they were also a part of the ministry. They themselves used to live on the streets in San Francisco. And they had been caught up in some pretty bad habits in their lives. But now their lives had been totally transformed by Jesus Christ. And they loved to celebrate. In particular, they loved to celebrate at about 7 o'clock at night right when we had our child just put to sleep. And all of a sudden, we would hear it, this like pounding, boom, 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 and then this clacking on the floor above us. And we would get so angry. You know, here they are celebrating their freedom in Christ. And we, the, the righteous missionaries, are downstairs saying, don't you know the rules? Don't you know that we are trying to raise the perfect child who can sleep perfectly? It was, it was so funny, so funny. We were just always wondering how they could be so um, insensitive, you know, and our anxiety would just well up within us. And of course, as native Midwesterners, we would never talk to them about that, you know, who would ever want to do that, right? So we, the righteous missionaries, trying to raise our child according to the rules, and then our friends upstairs uh, were celebrating almost every night. Isn't it interesting how one person's or a group of people's celebration can be so obnoxious and so annoying to others? Maybe you've been in that situation before. Well, that's precisely what our gospel text is addressing here. Jesus is eating with sinners. 
He's celebrating with them. He's feasting with them. And then it's those righteous Pharisees. They hear the party going on upstairs, and they start to grumble. They're not following the rules anymore, these Pharisees are saying. He's not doing things right. He's eating with sinners, says the religious leaders. So most sermons that focus on, or most sermons on this passage from Luke will emphasize how dumb sheep are, which that's true. Sheep are stupid. Uh, It will also, uh, most sermons you'll also hear will emphasize the shepherd who rescues his people. And that is very true, and we will get to that in a moment. But we must take note that what launches those beautiful parables, those beautiful stories, is the anxiety of the devout. (laughs) And whether it's missionaries who are getting mad at women who are celebrating upstairs or Pharisees who are grumbling at repentant sinners, Jesus is concerned with the seemingly righteous persons who think that they need no repentance. So, so in verse 3, we read, he decides to tell them two parables. The first story is very familiar to us. A shepherd has 100 sheep. One manages to become lost. And so the shepherd leaves 99 of those sheep in open country in order to go and find the lost. When he finds the lost, he hoists the sheep onto his shoulders, he brings the sheep home, and he throws a party for the whole entire neighborhood. Everybody comes. So note that the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep in open country. That's actually not the best translation of that word, uh, that Greek word, uh, where we're reading open country. You see, what's going on here is that that word elsewhere in the New Testament is translated as wilderness or desert or desolate place. And sometimes the word is applied to a person, meaning abandoned. You see, those righteous sheep, the rule followers, the sheep who probably know the shepherd's voice, right, the ones who who stay close to the shepherd, they're actually the ones who are never lost. They are the ones who now find themselves in the wilderness. You see, for them hearing this story, they would have been bristled a little bit. They would have been irritated a little bit because Jesus is roasting them. Jesus is saying to them, you don't think you need to be rescued. Well, guess what? It turns out, oh, you who are never lost, you're actually in the desert now. While God is out busy busy rescuing sinners And to drive this point home, Jesus says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one repentant sinner than over 99 righteous who don't need repentance. That's meant to be Jesus' irony. That's meant to be a joke. We're supposed to read that line at the end of both of these parables and kind of chuckle a little bit. Because unless you see your need for repentance, you're left out in the wilderness. And you miss out on that heavenly rejoicing that's in place. Well, then we we shift from the first parable to the second. And then our focus shifts from those who are never lost or lost, and now we turn to the God who searches. And we hear a similar story about a lost coin. Here, a woman has ten coins, and she loses one. We don't know whether these coins are her dowry or her life savings or whatever, but the point is that these are of tremendous value to her. And losing just one coin is a huge deal. 
Now notice in this story, it's, it's about a coin, not a sheep. This is an inanimate object. We can't get mad at the coin for being stupid or disobedient or you know, such and such. It's the coin. You know, who knows what happened? Maybe this woman's uh, daughter picked up the coin and decided to go and hide it somewhere. We don't know. <laughs> but this focuses us, as the readers, as the listeners of this story, to pay particular attention to the woman who searches, the diligent one. And she turns the house inside out. You know, we lose stuff all the time. Car keys, favorite jackets, shoes, whatever. My mother-in-law tells the story of losing her engagement ring and turning the house inside out, looking in all the boxes, looking in her jackets, things like this. And then it wasn't until many years later that her son comes to her and says, that ring you had, was that... Was that special? <laughs> and she's like, actually, yes. He goes, oh, that's what I was afraid of. It, it turns out he had given it away to his eighth grade girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, way to go. <laughs> and that's a public story. He loves sharing that story, by the way. He thinks that's great. But we lose stuff all the time. This woman, she checks everywhere for her lost coin. She flips the couch cushions upside down. She goes to her jackets and pulls the pockets inside out. She looks there. She gets the flashlight and looks behind the refrigerator. She goes downstairs into the basement and opens up the dryer and takes out that that gross dryer lint basket thing, and she's like fiddling through that. She buys a Roomba, and she sends that thing out like seven times a day to run. This woman is looking everywhere. The text is emphasizing how diligent she is, and it pays off. She finds it. She finds the coin. She throws a party and she invites all of her friends. She invites the entire neighborhood. Who knows what kind of party that was? A huge block party. Do you see what Jesus is doing here in these stories? He's reminding the religious leaders of something that they forgot a long time ago. I don't know why they forgot it. Maybe they love how formulaic and rigid and predictable the law is. It's easy to sort yourself and judge yourself and sort others and judge others when you have lots and lots and lots and lots of rules. Maybe they love that. Maybe they love their rules and they love their laws because they can insulate themselves from the unclean folks. They can insulate themselves from from the dirty ones, the ones whose lives aren't so put together. But for whatever reason, they forgot. They forgot about God's heart. They forgot specifically that God loves to rescue sinners. That's what he does over and over again. Did you hear what the Lord said through the prophet this morning? I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from the places that they have been scattered. I will bring them in from the far country. I'll bring them in to their own land. I'll feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights where the, where the grass is lush and rich. Rich pasture, I will feed them. I myself will be their shepherd. I myself will make them lie down and rest, and their anxiety will evaporate away. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed, the injured, and the weak. People of God, this is, this is your God. This is our Father who we serve, the God who rescues. So I think what God is doing here is he's wooing in these Pharisees. He's working on their hearts. Sometimes in the scriptures, he scolds the Pharisees. He scolds the religious leaders. That's true. But I think here, he's trying to woo in these religious leaders. 
Won't you come in, he says. Don't be stuck out in the wilderness. Come. Come inside. There's a party going on here. Come inside. You see, God doesn't give up on people, even Pharisees. Even Pharisees. And if you don't believe me, take the word of a Pharisee. Look at Timothy. Paul was a Pharisee par excellence. That was his story. He loved being a Pharisee. And Paul wasn't just a lost sheep. He was a wolf. He devoured God's people. He didn't just grumble at sinners. He hunted them down. He chained them up and he delighted in their killing. By his own words, Paul says that he was a persecutor, an insolent opponent of God's people. But Christ, God incarnate, the shepherd clothed in flesh, rescued him. Paul says, I received mercy. Jesus' grace overflowed for me. I wonder how many times did Paul just weep at night thinking about all the things that he had done and the shepherd who knocked him down off that horse and shined that light at him and got his attention. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is why Paul can't help but break into praise at the end of that reading. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Don't you just hear the celebration in Paul's voice? I bet if Paul was in San Francisco on those nights, he'd probably be upstairs in that dance party. (laughs) Or I don't know, maybe he's really good at putting babies to sleep, who knows. So some of you may have seen an article uh, on, on the front page or front website in Christianity Today lately, written by a man whose name is Tom Terrence. Tom tells his story of growing up in the Deep South in Alabama in the 1960s when the federal government had just mandated desegregation. Many people in his city responded with fear, hate, violence, and Tom was caught up in this. He came from a broken home. He fed off of the hate, um, looked at the world, and, and really resonated with those messages that he heard. And so he joined the KKK. He came to believe that things like interracial marriage was an abomination. He thought that the Jews were conspiring against the Constitution and Christianity. And he thought that the only way to stop these things were through extreme violent measures. Well, one night... Tom was planting a bomb at the home of a Jewish business owner, and he and his partner uh, were ambushed by the police. His partner was killed in the shootout, and he himself was critically wounded. In fact, the doctors said to him, son, you're not going to make it more than 45 minutes. Well, a long story short, by the grace of God, he did live. By the grace of God, he went to prison. After escaping prison... And being recaptured, I know, and being re- this man has a book, like I can't wait to get my hands on this. Uh, after getting recaptured, he was placed in a maximum security unit where he spent most of his time by himself and just read everything that he could get his hands on. And he started with the old classic philosophies um, and then eventually got his hands on the New Testament and the gospel. And his life was completely transformed by the words in that book. Jesus Christ reached out from the scriptures and grabbed a hold of his heart, that heart of hatred, of violence, of killing, and he started to soften it. My eyes were opened in a way that went beyond the words on the page. I had been blind all my life and now beginning to see, he writes. 
God delivered me from hate, and I began to grow in love for others, even my black inmates. He befriended a Jewish lawyer as well. (laughs) Eventually, Tom was released, and he says, that's another miracle, that's another story for another day. But rather than being an instrument of killing and of hate and of violence, he became to be, he, he was, became to be an instrument of God's grace. And now, today, he's actually serving in pastoral ministry at a racially mixed church. How wild is that? He says, as I look back, I can only thank God that he didn't give me what I deserved. I deserved to die on that day. But because of his grace, he gave me what I needed, he says. You see, these stories that I've been sharing from our scriptures about scribes and Pharisees are still true. These aren't just stories that apply to a land, 2000, or a, a land um, on the other side of the planet in a time 2,000 years ago. God still rescues lost sheep and sometimes even wolves. So A.W. Tozer says that one cannot rise above his view of God. You see, the way that you view God will determine the vibrancy of your life, the way that you view other men and women. So my question is, what about you? How do you view God? How does your view of God shape the way that you look at yourself and you look at others? Are you like the religious leaders in Jesus' day? Do you believe that God's primary concern is adhering to very strict rules? Rules of the prayer book. (laughs) Rules of of society. Rules of, of whatever tradition you might come from. And don't get me wrong. Rules are good. Jesus does bring the sheep home. We could talk about that. But if that's your primary view of God, then your life will be filled at a minimum with grumbling, lots of grumbling, and at most with violence. Hmm. Or are you like those who are drawing near to Jesus Christ on that day? Those who believe that God rescues sinners. Because if so, friends, you'll be filled with joy and peace and grace and praise. Lots of praise. Friends, there is a feast happening right now. There is a feast in heaven that is happening right now. There are angels and archangels who are celebrating repentant sinners who come home. What kind of community are we going to be? When we come here together and come to the table, do we come just because we feel obligated to? Because we're trying to obey certain rules that we've been told? Or are we coming because we're celebrating our own homecoming? Celebrating the homecoming of one another? Celebrating the homecoming that we hope to see in our friends and our neighbors? This is the feast that we get to join in every single Sunday where Christ is the host, where Christ sets the table and you and I get to come forward and to receive from him. So draw near, brothers and sisters. Draw near. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.